Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode 14. Uh, I'm Joshua. And I am Mike. And we are on the road. We are driving. Uh, <laughs> in fact, uh, I need a dollar for a toll. Coming up, do you have a dollar? Do I have a dollar? Yeah. Yeah, hold on. Okay. How come I always have to pay? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, where are the chips? Here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. So yeah, we are on the road because we are coming back from uh, weaving some rush seats. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, but we've had a lot of cool stuff uh, in the works. We've been on the road a lot lately, yeah, it seems. Definitely a lot. Um, and so actually one of the things that I just got an email about today, which is really exciting, is that we um, just got the design back from our the printer of our new t-shirt design. They gave us you know the... They need a final okay from us, and the shirt looks awesome. Uh, so we're really excited about that. Um, so, yeah, I guess we'll we'll show you that design in a few days. Uh, uh, hold on here. We're going through the toll. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Um, so the T-shirt design is on the way, and uh, I expect that we'll be having those for sale in the next i don't know yeah, couple, couple weeks couple weeks i would think so that'll be cool yeah um but i don't know what else what tell it what, what is this rush seat project we're doing mike okay so um one of the students in our um our upcoming workshop wanted to do uh she wanted to learn chair making and so we were uh, we're going to kind of start with some basics um, some green woodworking, uh, basic chair making. So Joshua and I wanted to uh, do a bit of a refresher for both of us, um, starting from logs and making simple chairs. So we each made uh, a different style, sort of a, a low back uh, chair out of uh, riven wood and uh, merging. <laughs> and uh, had a lot of fun with it, you know, sourcing the materials from either the, you know, the, the wet firewood pile or cutting down a tree. And um, so we both made these these chairs, and we decided the best way, uh, the best seat material uh, was a, a twisted um, cattail brush. Uh, yeah. Down below the shop, uh, Joshua and his family have a big pond, and it is just it's all the cattails you could ever want so we're like we should learn how to use those uh to the best of our advantage right yeah and you know, i've been doing con uh, furniture conservation for a handful of years and i i've always loved uh cattail rush seats and i've done a bunch of uh fiber rush which is like the the paper rush uh i've also done some of the pre-twisted seagrass stuff yeah. and it's none it's no of good. it it's no good it's it's not it's not the same yeah. Uh, but that cattail uh, woven rush seat is just so beautiful and so comfortable. I've always loved those, but I've never known how to do it. I've never yeah. known how to actually harvest the cattails and, and uh, twist them. Dry and... them properly. Yeah, the, the method has always had some mystique to it for me. I was like, how do you do that? How do you twist in a new one? How do you hide all the um, all the new pieces of cattail, all the, the joints where the butt of the cattail meets? On the underside of the seat, how do you plan for that? Um, and so we uh, came down to Portland. It's a two and a half hour drive, right? Yeah, from it's the three, shop. Three, three hours. hours from the shop. Yeah. That's right. Uh, about three hours. Um, 
we came down to um, to meet with uh, Bernard Zike. Zike. Z i k Zike, who is a, a master at all kinds of seat materials. Uh, his his business is called Able to Cane, <laughs> and he he does you know the um, natural rush. He does caning. He he'll do a, a fiber rush if you need him to. Um, he'll do repairs and things like that. So, and he's the only guy we know, right, who does Twisted Rush. Uh, yeah, in the area. I mean, I, I'm sure there are other people. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, there are... The, so, I've used him for an issue two of the magazine. I made a banister back chair. And I had <clears throat> I had Bernard do the rush seat on that. And I was just so blown away. He's so good. Yeah. I said, you know what? I, if we're going to do cattails, i got to call him and see if he'll t- uh, give us lessons. Yeah. Uh, and it was awesome. It was so much fun. He was not sure he's like i don't know how this is gonna go um but by the end of the day he was uh he said wow this worked out way better than i thought this is really fun um so our seats are not done yet we this day was a day about learning yeah uh so we're maybe halfway done with our seats yeah we we figure we have a pretty good chance of getting them done tomorrow because we we both want to sit in our chairs at dinner time so basically (laughs) we're not allowed to eat until our chairs are done <laughs> Eat dinner. Eat dinner. I, I'm oh, eating breakfast yeah. tomorrow. We'll be kind of shaky by dinner time if we don't eat until our chairs are done. Yeah, so that'll be pretty cool. And I, I think isn't West stopping by tomorrow? Yes, our good friend West Falkenberry. He's coming up for the uh, Wooden Boat School Alumni Week, as he always does. He's like the world's greatest volunteer helper for anything. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a regular at Wooden Boat. He's been to every packing party of ours, uh, and he he always like shows up early and then stays to help clean up. It's just amazing. Yeah, Wes is awesome. It'd be great to see him again. Yeah. So yeah, we'll be uh, probably weaving some rush seats and uh, hanging out with Wes. Um, yeah. yeah. And one one of the things that Bernard said because we you know we are always talking about uh, skills and holding on to um, ways of the past and trying to. Uh, keep them going and keep them rolling and uh, one of the last things that Bernard said to us uh, as he was teaching us this he said well I, th- I think you guys have caught on and he said uh, so just so you know we're pretty much the only three left yeah, who totally. can do this <laughs> yeah totally and we're like oh wow yeah. that's an interesting thought well that actually reminds me you know we've been on the road so much we've been yeah. uh, we've been to a bunch of different places um, the past few weeks we've each taken a trip uh, well, each week we've taken a trip down uh, southern Maine, you know, down south a little bit. Um, seen a bunch of different stuff. Um, yeah, for those of you who aren't from Maine, especially if you've never been up to uh, mid-coast Maine or down east Maine, which is where we are, uh, anything that you want to go to is at least two and a half hours away. That's And that's just how it is. And, and if that's you live just... in Texas, I'm sure that's nothing, but up here you have to drive to get anywhere. So. And, and that's why we live there. That's we why love we that. love it. Because we're away from everything. <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, so yeah, last week uh, we had an incredible opportunity. Uh, we were able to spend an entire day in this massive furniture collection. Yeah. And we're given access to a bunch of incredible stuff. Yeah. Um, what, the long and short of it is we were able to crawl under tables and, and desks and, you know, chairs and all this different yeah. stuff and examine uh, how this stuff was put together 
big flashlight and trying to say, well, what was going on here and why was that? And, you know, what we often say is we say, you know, tool marks tell stories. Right. And as corny as that is, because it is corny. It is corny. Uh, it's nice. The reason we latched onto that uh, was be- it's, it's helpful be- to think about that because when we look at a piece of furniture and all of its tool marks, it helps us understand uh, how this work was done. And that's, you know, we've said that a bunch of times about pre-industrial work, um, that it's, it's the evidence of process. You could retrace that. Just like if you had blueprints or you had plans, you could say, now I can build this piece. We feel the same way about those tool marks that they tell the story. Yeah. Uh, not only how was it made, but who was this person? And it's just really, for me, like it really helps us commune with the maker and understand who they were and, and we can learn from that, you know? So. Yeah, and what we found is, uh, you know, historically, those tool marks were present in everything from, from from simple things and vernacular furniture all the way up to, like, Townsend and Goddard and all the Newport and Philadelphia and Boston yeah. makers. Those tool marks were, were always present because uh, those those makers and cabinet makers and furniture makers all knew how to work efficiently and we're we're so glad that that's how they worked because we can unpack the process based on the marks they left behind well and i mean, I mean speaking of marks too remember that the marks we saw that were yeah. non-human marks yes oh my goodness this was so cool so this one um this one particular piece which was uh dated around um 1820 1830 it was a, a cabinet right yeah uh, a painted cabinet painted cabinet or cover the cover it was cover. Yeah. okay um and original paint right and so we're looking at it and of course as we always say raking light is vital for picking out details for picking out tool marks and for picking out texture and paint and so we had some raking light on the face of this and found depressions in the paint from cat paw prints and so we looked and we're like oh my goodness there's a print there's a print and there's a print so we could see 200 years ago when this door was painted it was laying out presumably on sawhorses right after it was being painted a cat jumped up on it and walked across it and i mean this is just amazing and we talked to the the gentleman there who's kind of in charge of the collection he's like how have i never seen this yeah and he was telling other people about it oh my goodness look and at they this said there. wait oh yeah we should turn around and look at the back you should show me he said no no it's right on yeah. the front of the it's door right in the middle and of they the said door. what uh it was just so cool to see that and it's like you know without that raking light those cat prints don't exist right and as soon as you lower that angle of the light you, you rake across the surface sideways it just jumps out you know out of the uh, so at, that that's how you can spot the 200 year old cat tracks in your furniture yeah exactly it's just it's just so cool now for me it really is those simple things that are just so profound mm-hmm. um and i just uh it's what drives me back to antique stores to go pull drawers out and figure out how you know how is this stuff made um, this kind of stuff just shakes me up. You know, I just don't, yeah. it's pretty cool. It is. It's a pretty cool thing. Um, but we also, a few weeks ago, met with another guy uh-huh. who is, uh, speaking of inspiration, yeah. and uh, super uh, profound, the, the depth of conversation. A lot of people uh, we've talked with uh, in our trips and visits have a lot of really great woodworking experience and can have taught us so many things. Um, but there's this this trip uh, with Peter Lamb in Southern Maine. This guy is just he's very knowledgeable and he's so 
thoughtful and deep and sweet and uh, hospitable. And it was just yeah. such a, an awesome trip with him. His house is um, is is full of antique tools. He's got this shop, actually, kind of two shops. One small building that's an eighteen ten. I believe chair so, yeah. shop. I think yeah. it was. Um, so small building, and then he's got a workshop uh, he put up, and it's just full of antique it's tools. Such an inspiring place to be. You know, you go there and you feel like you just want to make something. You're surrounded by these beautiful things that he has gathered or been gifted um, from around the world. You know, and uh, they're just beautiful. And, and he wants you to pick them up and handle them and look at them. And, and everything has a story to it. Yeah. And that's what I I just absolutely love loved about visiting him like everything has a story you pick up something and he'll tell you the most amazing and interesting story about about that that object and the person who made it and the the circumstances and um it's just really wonderful and i don't know the a big highlight for me was um we went down to uh to the waterfront he's kind of he's he's on an island and uh on i guess it's the northern side of the island there's he has there's a little boathouse there that he shares with people in the community and he keeps a um a henry valancourt um 1970s ish uh birch bark canoe uh if any of you are are birch bark canoe people you probably know the name henry valancourt uh but i you know have have always just um just really admired birch bark canoes. I see them as kind of like the pinnacle of green woodworking. You're taking yeah, every totally. single part of the tree and using the material to best advantage. So you have birch bark. Uh, what are the ribs? Yeah, so the ribs are cedar usually. Cedar ribs. Um, and then it's bound with yeah, spruce root. Spruce root. And what's the, the glue? What's the adhesive it's, it's historically? Usually, well, yeah. His, Woo! Hey, we are kind of merging. <laughs> Hey, hey, does anyone know the license plate O-Yup? <laughs> O-H-Y-U-U-P in yeah. Maine? They just cut us off. They that did. was kind of rude. Yeah. It's super dangerous. Notice I didn't lay on my horn, though, because I'm a very calm <laughs> driver. Yikes. O-Yup. O-Yup. Okay. Uh, what were you saying? Oh, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so Henry Valancourt, usually when you seal the um, the seams in a birch bark canoe, canoe you use, like... Um, uh, spruce gum or pine resin and you mix it with some charcoal and some other people do some different things with it but he's he's a uh, pretty unique in that he would just use like roofing tar <laughs> and so people would be like wait he'd, use it. he'd, he'd bring uh, like a tub of, of roofing tar on canoe trips and that's what he'd use to patch the boat and he's like oh why would I use anything else this stuff works great <laughs> so um what do you think I am, crazy? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Building a boat out of tree bark. But uh, it was a gorgeous boat. And, yeah, um, it was pretty awesome. So cool. We we put it in the water, and we, we paddled around a little bit, and uh, kind of been a, you know, a lifelong dream of mine to, to paddle a birch bark canoe. So that was, that was super cool. Yeah, and when I got home, my son, uh, my oldest, he's 10, he was just so jealous. He's like, <laughs> like, Papa, I want to see pictures of this canoe. I, I can't wait. I want to try this out. So uh, it was a pretty awesome thing. And I think, you know, our time with, with Peter uh, down there was just, like Mike was saying about every tool had a story. That was the thing that was so impressive to me that, you know, there's this pile of these uh, long-handled 
gouge-shaped tools that I kind of had a suspicion, but they aren't tools that I've really seen before. I thought, I wonder what those are. And I asked him, I said, Peter, what are those? And they looked like brand new blacksmith-made tools, so a pile of them. And he said, oh, those are Sabbath-making uh, tools. They're like the, the gouges that uh, rough out. He said, yeah, the new old stock. Uh, you know, a friend of mine in France sent him over to me and thought I would like these. And uh, and then he has a bunch of other Sabbath-making tools. And we're just thinking, like, Sabbath, those are wooden shoes, by the way, right. Sabbath. Um, but, yeah, it's just so cool to see that the connection that he has with um, the tools and the people and, you know, the different kinds of things yep. that he's doing. Um, and he's really passionate about um, issues of uh, people and communities and social justice and that kind of thing. And a lot of his ideas about the relationship of, of craft and community and, and people um, are really founded on the things that he learned, um, a lot of it in his time with Bill Copperthwaite, who is a uh, big inspiration to us. Yeah. And Bill Copperthwaite, uh, passed away a few years ago, um, but his book, A Handmade Life, uh, pretty dramatically affected the way I thought about uh, living life, and so um, in the way that the work of my hands uh, informs the rest of my life, and, and right. how it's a how that relationship can't really be severed. Where you you go to work and do your work there, and then you come home and you have a different kind of life. Bill was tying all those things together for me in a way that I. I hadn't seen before so Peter Lamb is very much in that same vein and it was really inspiring to see uh, his his uh, reverence of the past his yeah. appreciation for the people that have come before him and his appreciation for their skills and his desire to carry it on forward and to, to spread that uh, infectious enthusiasm yeah the the joy of of making you yeah. know and Bill Copperthwaite was uh, wrote in his book that he wanted to live in a world that was intoxicated with the joy of making things. And um, that, I think, really was just embodied in Peter Lamb's shop. It just was, oh, wow, what's this tool? And what's that? And, oh, I want to try this. And I was, we came back so inspired. Yeah, we were, we were pretty pumped, pumped up. We, we as were, you could probably yeah, tell. <laughs> we, we're just, the great thing about these trips is, uh, you know, here we are. We're, we're podcasting in the van, right? We're, we're making the most of our time. Um, but we've had this great time to kind of unpack our thoughts on the way back home. We have three hours to, to talk and take notes and, and think about, you know, moving forward. Like, how do we want, how do we want to get this message out? How do we want to convey this in, in a way that really uh, shows how special this thing or this person is? And uh, it, it works. It's, it's really good to yeah. be able to have this, this uh, time. It's also, you know, it's very scenic driving across Maine. Uh, yeah, it's not a bad place to Yeah, be. you can't really beat it, so. Yeah, uh, so what else? Besides all our trips, we've been doing, we've been working on our articles yep. for the next issue of the magazine. Yep. Two, our, uh, issue seven. Exactly. It's not out, it's not ready, it's there, but we're working on our articles. Yep. Um, our authors are also working on their articles. Yep. Um, and, and it sounds like everyone is... Uh, is on schedule and on yeah. target which yeah. is always a great thing to hear from yeah, your authors it is so um, yeah we're um you know my my article has been really interesting uh just talking with people um from different woodworking backgrounds and kind of getting to the heart of uh of what what they're all about like finding the, the commonalities within those 
different, like vastly differing woodworking traditions. But, you know, in the end, we're all kind of after the same goals. Even if our tools look a little bit different and the way we use them is a little bit different, uh, there's just a lot of similarities. And uh, I, I really appreciate that about woodworking, how it kind of transcends uh, boundaries and, and different things. Um, so that has been really interesting. And now the, you know, of course the challenge is to, to, uh, to form something cohesive out of all, you know, the, the specific angle that I'm taking, um, yeah. to, to form a, a good, um, cohesive argument out of it that, you know, hopefully at least a couple people will want to read. Yeah. Um, that's the goal. Anyway. Well, and it, it, you know, your comments about your article and these different traditions does remind me you know, when in our time with Peter Lamb, his interest in all these different cultures, he and Bill Copperthwaite yeah. were traveling around the world, documenting historic uh, practices and crafts in different cultures, um, not to hijack them, but to make sure that they were known and, and you know celebrate, celebrate them. And yeah. so this is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you have uh, Bill's book, uh, you know, he has a lot of different examples of different cultural. Uh, crafts that he has documented and said, wow, this is incredible. Um, and we, uh, Peter and I were talking about, there's a book, uh, Folk Arts and Crafts of Japan or something, I mm. forgot the title, but there's a quote in there talking about uh, Soetsu Yanagi and uh, that kind of approach to Japanese craft um, and, and philosophy of craft. Um, and there's the kind of embodying this idea was this this paragraph describing this view of um, the relationship of artisans in, in nature that in this book what they were saying was you know nature manifests itself through regional artisans working with natural materials hmm. so you, the materials uh, when you're using a tree you have wood right. that's your material it really confines you it really dictates how the material must be used right. and so it help it informs what kind of products you make and how you make them um, but then when you with a with that little quote was talking about was just saying in each region with different kinds of materials available as the artisans and the natural materials collaborate to create things you have uh, because of that nature manifests itself you know as right. they were saying that it in different areas different beautiful things emerge with that relationship of uh, humanity and nature and that's what Peter Lamb was, he talked about that over and over and over, yeah. that connection of how important it is when we use natural materials, um, that what emerges out of culture, when culture yeah. and nature are connected. And it's just a really cool thing. So Mike's article is, uh, you know, picking up on that same kind of theme, I think. Right. Too. Yeah. Yeah. That is, uh, that's one of the, one of the directions I'm going with it. So, yeah. Cool. Um, and then, yeah, I've been working on my article which is a little bit different, um, but it is loosely uh, based on, you know, this is kind of, as you can tell, I'm t talking about the philosophy of craft kind of stuff, uh, because that's what, where my mind is right now. Um, how tool marks tell stories, the, the quality of, of surfaces. I've been uh, doing a good amount of reading in a few different uh, craft philosophy books, and I just wanted to take the opportunity to kind of distill some arguments I think are really important and just distill some ideas that uh, people get you know 
confused or misunderstood and think it's all hand tools versus machines, which is something, you know, we talk about hand tools a lot, but um, there have been some people uh, in, in history that have been uh, very careful and very precise and very insightful uh, about different philosophies of craft, and particularly um, in our mechanical age, in our industrial age, when everything around us, most everything is uh, mechanically produced and very, very regular. Right. Um, how do we, how do we see humanity expressed in the made things around us? Um, and so, it's this article is pretty, pretty uh, philosophical. But what the whole goal is is to take some writings that are sort of characterized as heavily philosophical and distill them down and say, listen, this is how it works in your shop. Yeah, this is how it's practical. <laughs> That's what my article is all about, is saying this is what it means in the shop and why it's why it's a powerful thing. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of an interesting work to try to, like, yeah. go from complicated philosophical stuff to, like, and see, here's this tool and this is how it relates to that, or I don't yeah. know. So... That's been fun to put together. Um, but uh, we're also... What else are we doing? We're Besides articles... Yeah. What else are we doing? But, so we have been getting ready for the workshop. Yep, the workshop. Coming up. Uh, that's coming up in less than a month. Yep. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. So now y- you can tell when we are recording this, if you know the dates on our calendar. Uh, in less than a month, we will be having six students come in to uh, to stay with us at the shop and uh, to work with us and we'll work with them and each student has a different project that they'll be working on uh, so one of the things that we've been doing to get ready is uh, should I should I give away that we're okay I won't do that anyway we're, we uh, we're working on the tools in the shop and uh, one of the things we've been doing is uh, making some knives some some bench knives some Sloyd knives for uh, use in, uh, um, you know, just you could use it as a marking tool, a cutting tool, carving tool, whatever you want, you know, multi-purpose. Everybody needs a knife. Everybody needs a knife at their bench. Um, so we need enough for six students. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been cool. We, uh, our, our friend Reed Schwartz has this really awesome uh, work-holding appliance, I guess you would call it, in his shop because Reed makes knives, uh, Sloyd knives. And so he has this this wedged uh, holding system that mounts in a vise, and so we adapted his design to our needs. Um, and so it's a really great work-holding uh, apparatus. You know, so you can hold this blank and you can shape it. Um, uh, with I was using a spoke shape to finish off the surfaces uh, to make these nice clean facets. And yep. um, So it's been fun to make those handles and then we burned in the tangs with a, a, a dummy uh, tang. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so we're excited to be able to get all these tools tuned up. I've been started in on the four planes, and we have some other tools that we got to... I don't think we've sharpened one chisel yet. Or one saw. <laughs> or one saw. But, hey... We have a lot of that to, to go. We got time. Yeah. <laughs> um, Just, we've got a few weeks. Yeah, we've got, we, we got a few time. weeks. Um, so the other thing that we're doing in a couple weeks is um, uh, Bennett Konezny. Yeah. Is uh, he he lives out in the Blue Hill Peninsula, right? No, he, he actually lives in Belfast. Travel. Okay, he lives in Belfast. Uh, he 
he gets around though he travels all around the world basically yeah um so his focus his passion is uh in the area of of work songs yeah right singing while you're working singing while you're working it is historically has always been done and uh you travel around the world today you know rural areas agrarian uh cultures it's super common still you know, most of us in the in the affluent West, we we kind of have given up on our our ability to sing and to sing and make make work fun. And uh, so Bennett is is what would you say leading the charge to reverse that trend? I think he is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he's coming to the Blue Hill Peninsula in a couple weeks, and he's leading a series of workshops on work songs. Yeah. Uh, different different venues and different styles of work songs he's going to have some uh some workshops for uh work songs while you're out uh working in the field you know working in the garden you're you're hoeing and uh sewing and um and then he'll have a series of workshops for rowing which i am particularly excited about yeah um the one day joshua and i have signed up to go out uh he has a a 40 foot uh, rowboat, and we're gonna go out and row around in Blue Hill Bay, and sing some songs while we're out there. Does that not sound amazing? Yes, yeah, <laughs> sing some sea shanties while oh we're goodness. out on the I can't wait. on the briny blue. <laughs> uh, so that's gonna be pretty great. Yeah. So yeah, Bennett. Uh, I've recently struck up a, a cool friendship with Bennett. We've been talking about a lot of stuff timber framing and work songs and the Domini family. Yeah. Who would have known this? Yeah, so I I, uh, connected with Bennett because he has this work song research I thought was so cool. And then casually uh, in an email he said, oh, hey, uh, cool magazine. I I really like your magazine. Yoga Soonquist is one of my heroes. That's so cool. And I said, oh, really? Wow, cool. And he said, oh, and by the way, I have, uh, you know, one of the most complete work Windmills uh, in in New England, right? In, well, in the U.S. In the U.S. Yeah, and uh, it was made by Nathaniel Dominey the fifth. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, the Dominey family, like from the the Winterthur collection with the whole shop. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, that the Dominey family. We have the most complete windmill in the United States. Uh, it was made by Nathaniel Dominey the fifth. The uh, most complete and almost oldest right uh, the the very oldest is not as complete as this one right and bennett just told me uh the other day that charles hummel was in the windmill with him and was giving him a tour was giving bennett a tour of it and showing was talking about nathaniel dominey wow. and i thought whoa what in the world yeah this uh, is this this singing farmer this singing garlic farmer from, from belfast happens to own this windmill uh it's not in maine but he uh, his family owns it so a lot of really crazy, awesome connections. You will, I think you're going to hear Bennett's name a few more times because uh, yeah. there's a lot of cool stuff going on uh, in yeah. his circle. So, uh, this was the craziest podcast we have done yet. I would yet. say, yeah, I've never been cut off by another driver while podcasting before. <laughs> but for the most part, the drive is uneventful. Yeah. You know, uh, a little bit of road construction. Maine does not have much for traffic. Right now we're behind another vehicle, so that's kind of what we count as traffic. Yeah. Um, but other than that, you know. Do we pass Liberty yet? 
Uh, no, the road is coming up. Oh, yeah, so Liberty Tool... Oh, they're closed. Yeah, they're closed. Bummer. But maybe we can call Tanner. No, we're no, good. No, we just did that last week. Yeah. We don't need to stop <laughs> in again. Hey, Tanner. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, anyways... Wow, podcasting on the road. I'm curious to see what this sounds like. Yeah, hopefully you all can hear us okay. All right, well, thank you for tuning in. Uh, We appreciate you uh, subscribing if you haven't already. You can do so on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. Uh, If you have any comments or questions or uh, driving critiques or anything like that, uh, feel free to email us at info at mortisintendentmag.com or leave comments uh, on the post below. So uh, thanks for listening. See you next time.